In February 2021, the Biden administration began the process to unwind the Migrant Protection Protocols policy, also known as Remain in Mexico. At the South Texas border, the program had pushed thousands of migrants into a makeshift refugee encampment in Matamoros, Mexico. In the 10 days following an announcement to close the encampment, the United Nations began a humanitarian operation that unified the efforts of residents of the encampment, U.S.-based grassroots advocates, and local attorneys to safely process everyone into the United States. I am Laura Peña, attorney, advocate, born and raised in the Rio Grande Valley, and I'll be your guide as we journey through Valle de Sueños, Valley of Dreams. Immigration policy, especially in the recent past, is a frustratingly moving target. If you've been following the news, you've no doubt heard about President Biden's recent trip to El Paso and his remarks on Title 42. As a reminder, Title 42 is a Trump-era border policy that immediately expels all migrants at the southern border, either to Mexico or their home country. The policy was launched under the guise of public health during the COVID-19 pandemic, but Biden's commitment to end the policy has been drawn out. Conservative states have blocked Title 42 from ending in the courts, and now we are waiting for the Supreme Court to decide whether or not these states even have a right to challenge the president's decision at all. Basically, the president's position is he will continue expelling migrants under Title 42, and he's attempting to encourage people from certain countries, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, Haiti, to apply for a parole program through a government app called CBP-1. Imagine running for your life, doing everything you can to protect yourself and your loved ones, and then somebody tells you, oh, but there's this app more hodgepodge patchwork solutions that fail to comprehensively address immigration. To use an analogy, the roof of our home is leaking, and instead of fixing the roof, the president brought in a couple of buckets. But on today's episode, we're going to zoom out just a little and look at the various groups and organizations who were working inside the camp back in 2021. We'll hear from volunteers in their own words about their work and what brought them to Matamoros. My name is Charlene DeCruz. I am from Wisconsin. I'm originally from India. I immigrated to the U.S. in the 80s as a student, but I moved down to the RGV to work on MPP and working with, with the Latino community around the U.S., Charlene de Cruz, formerly with a nonprofit called Project Corazon, is a longtime advocate in the immigrant rights space who has helped build the fabric of migrant justice at the border. She also harvests rice and taps molasses and is an amazing mother of two. I had initially started working on the border back in the 80s. My entire legal history has been with immigrants, mostly Latinos, in various fields, housing and immigration and disability law. When MPP started, I came down here, but that was not where I was supposed to be. I was just supposed to come down here for one weekend to help. But when I saw the situation down there, and I'll never forget the first time we tried to cross the border and it was closed. And at that time, the camp was in the plaza and it was there was about 
2,500 to 3,000 people in the hot sun, sleeping in uh, Carpa's uh, tents. I decided that this is the place where we would house Pracha Corazon, Matamoros, because there was few or no resources available. And I said, this is it. I'm going to try to get people from all over the U.S., attorneys and translators and other people to help remotely so that we could have a huge impact rather than one or two attorneys coming to the border and doing a couple cases. And I scaled up a program to do I-589s, which are the asylum applications for people in the tent city. My name is Andrea Rudnick, and... What I spend my time doing is putting out fires. Angie Rudnick is with Team Brownsville. She and a couple of other school teachers were able to mobilize thousands of volunteers to help provide food and support to asylum seekers who were stuck just on the other side of the border. Um, Team Brownsville started as a core group of Brownsville ISD teachers and administrators primarily from the special education department. When family separation became more widely known in June of 2018, that rally brought many of us together. One of us, Sergio, said, well, I'm going to put out an all call among all my teacher friends and I'm going to tell them to bring snacks, bring water, bring whatever they want to buy it. We didn't really know what we were doing. I mean, we weren't Team Brownsville. We were just like people trying to figure stuff out. Like, okay, what can we do? What can we get away with doing? We didn't know. So we kind of thought of ideas. Okay, let's get a bunch of tote bags. Let's get, and we'll put water and snacks and toiletries and stuff in tote bags and we'll take them across. Only to have the people from the aduana tell us, oh, you can only bring four bags at a time. So... I just remember going back and forth and back and forth with four bags, four bags, four bags, four bags. At that point, there were maybe maybe 20 or so people on the bridge. And more people came. And more people. And more people. It was a community. Hi, I'm Gabriela Zavala. I'm the director of Resource Center Matamoros. Initially, I would describe myself as a community organizer, usually around immigration issues. Gabby is a Chingona activist with a long history of engagement in the border region, but her true superpower is managing all of this advocacy while parenting three small children on her own. You hear a baby in the background because her little one is just a few months old. But officially, I am the founder of a nonprofit called Asylum Seeker Network of Support. The mission of that nonprofit is to create grassroots efforts that provide direct aid to asylum seekers along the Texas-Mexico border. We also do case management and social support for immigrants along the Texas-Mexico border, but also the ones that have expanded into the United States. So the encampment started off as a tent city where people had very limited access to any kind of resources. I think um, in the beginning, the NGOs that responded to MPP or people, be, the Remain in Mexico policy, sort of began to provide very simplistic services like access to food, blankets, water. Once we saw that people weren't going anywhere, we started seeing some of the bigger need. Um, people started bringing tents, sleeping bags, 
And then we started to realize that there was public health issues started to emerge. And so a lot of the NGOs started to address those issues. RCM was one of them. One of the first efforts that we did was providing showers, you know, access to clean water. All these asylum seekers were taking showers in the river um, due to lack of access. So we started to see that the encampment was growing and growing and finally became a full-blown camp of about close to 2,500 people at one time. Se hizo como un pueblo, right? It became like a little like a little town structure. People started creating kitchens and housing units that had multiple family, you know, like dwellings. And so people started bringing in electricity and stoves and gas stoves and things like that. And so the tent city became a full-blown camp, you know. It was basically a camp ran by NGOs and NGOs that didn't have experience with this. And so we all sort of learned what it was to run a camp. Um, we had no idea how to do it. My name is Felicia Ranhel Sampanaro, and I am one of the directors of the Sidewalk School. Felicia is the only Black American activist leading one of the grassroots humanitarian organizations, the Sidewalk School. They employed migrant teachers as instructors at the pop-up school inside the camp. I can't even begin to describe the lengths that Felicia will go to see that people are treated fairly. And this is a time before the encampment was fenced in and everyone lived in that park. This is when people were living on the sidewalk next to the bridge. One of my best friends, his name is Ray. Ray Rodriguez, he's now here in the U.S. He used to be a professor in Cuba. And Ray's best friend's name is Tito. Tito used to work in finances in Cuba. And I was a licensed teacher in the state of Texas. I also have my bachelor's degree in psychology. So it was one day while Tito and Ray were eating on the sidewalk. If you know the Matamoros encampment, that's how it was set up at the time. You would stand in line, get your food, sit down on the sidewalk and eat. And I literally just said, wouldn't it be a good idea if we started a school, but you guys were the teachers? And everyone said, yeah, that's a really good idea. But how would it work? This wasn't an idea that two Americans thought of by themselves. This was an idea that two asylum seekers had sat there and thought along with us. What is best for your community? Because it shouldn't be Americans going into other countries, other communities, and I'm telling you, this is how it should be. What do I know? The model that we set up was we only hire asylum seekers as staff. And our teachers all have degrees, and we also have teacher assistants. And all of these people get paid every single week, so they are not dependent upon Americans to bring them stuff. That's a hard way to live, and it's not sustainable. It's not. But it was also important that the children asylum seekers saw themselves in their teachers and in their leaders as the people providing food, providing clothing, providing medical care. They need to see other brown and black people doing that, not just white people. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> and there are so many legal and non-legal volunteers like Jody Goodwin, Luis Holmes, and so, so many other people who I wasn't able to interview who have played such an important role in creating the fabric of migrant advocacy in the Rio Grande Valley. 
There are also fantastic organizations that are not interviewed, but play an important role like the Angry Tias y Abuelas, Good Neighbor Settlement House, and many others that continue to do the difficult and quite often unappreciated and targeted work of ensuring that migrants have access to basic needs, basic rights along the Texas-Mexico border. Via the Sueños will return. Hi, Laura here. Via the Sueños is an independently produced podcast, so if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a rating. It really does help. And if you know someone you think might enjoy this story, send it their way. Really appreciate it. Now, back to the episode. As mostly U.S. citizens claiming the border region as home, our committee often struggled with our role as privileged U.S. citizens whose country was responsible for inflicting harm upon the people living in the encampment. Prisca Dorcas Mojica Rodriguez, an author and self-proclaimed beneficiary of medical tourism and missionary voyeurism, defines volunteerists as short-term white helpers touring another country and other people and disguising good deeds to hide that their efforts are exploitative acts. But over the course of the two years, our committee had helped thousands of volunteerists, mainly white northerners, to visit the Matamoros refugee encampment. People would come for a few days to serve meals or provide yoga sessions or legal training. It became political, too. During the presidential campaign, Jill Biden visited the encampment for a few hours, and her entourage coordinated serving tamales to over 1,000 people. To this day, I do not know the impact of those temporary trips on the residents. And while I'm sure they all meant well, at times these efforts could be a distraction. On day three, the plan was for everybody to stay at a shelter Sister Norma had prepared for the 200 people who would be entering the U.S. that day. The respite center McAllen has been uh, in operation since 2014 and always receiving families throughout every single day. When we started to receive families that were crossing from the camp. Some buses would remain in Brownsville and we will alternate and then some would then be brought to McAllen, to uh, the respite center in McAllen. On this day, other parts of our region experienced a shift. We were unaware of a change in policy on the Mexican side of the border. The state of Tamaulipas, where Matamoros is located, had made a decision to implement a child welfare law that prevented Mexican officials from detaining small children in immigration jails. In practice, this policy change resulted in Mexican officials refusing to accept expelled migrant families with young children. Now, immigration policies only work if other countries agree to them. So this one small Mexican state had decided not to cooperate with Title 42. The result? At the same time of 200 people being processed out of the Matamoros encampment, an additional 300 migrants needed shelter, food, and respite in the Rio Grande Valley. 
and that number was increasing by the day. We received a great number of families that were being released. We were sending families to other spaces like a parish hall that was taking 300 to relieve the amount of people that we were receiving. So there was a miscommunication as to where the first group that was coming was supposed to go to the parish hall where the parish hall was ready to receive them and to welcome them and to provide them with the right space considering that we were at the respite center full with these other families. Um, unfortunately, one of my staff directed that bus back to the respite center. And so when that happened, we ended up at the respite center with great number of more families that we were anticipating. The shelter, which had been in use since 2014, was no stranger to large groups of people, sometimes as many as two to 3,000 people a day. But this confluence of events simply overwhelmed their capacity at a time that the border had been shuttered for months. Later that evening, as I drove home from the Brownsville bus station, I got a frantic call from another advocate. Sister Norma's shelter was overflowing, and the families who had just left the camp were confused and frustrated. On our WhatsApp channel, volunteers in our committee circulated videos of migrant families in an overcrowded shelter, babies without diapers. It looked chaotic. One of the often overlooked aspects of aid in general is that it's not simply enough to have the resources. You need to be able to get those resources to the people who need them. It's as much a logistical problem as a financial one. The families were like, I need help, I want to go, I want to leave, I want to be able to go with my family. There was not enough staff and volunteers to be able to provide them, whether there was enough water, there was enough everything. It was not just enough of them available to say, here's water, here's here's milk, here's this, here's that. So it, it was a lot of confusion, a lot of families desperate to wanting to get things right away and that's where the the chaos happened. Those who'd been in the camp every day or who had previously worked with Sister Norma on other issues, they could recognize that they were doing the best they could in the difficult circumstances and that things would soon be under control. The more recently arrived folks held a much less charitable view. I was sad that a group that I had been working with that instead of stepping up and saying, how can I help? Basically just uh, turn around and, and throw me under the bus, basically. You know? That um, was uh, not a good day. You know, I felt bad, you know, that, that they were complaining so much about what she was able to provide at the respite center. You know, when you try to set up structures to help mass amount of people and you do the best you can with the resources that you have, but it's just not good enough, you know, I mean, you know, in the eyes of, of the world. And to have people sort of say, this is unacceptable, um, it's a little, you know, I can identify with that because a lot of times you try the best you can and it's, you know, you, you, your hands are tied with how much you can help massive amounts of people. Despite coming from many, many different walks of life, a lot of different skill sets, a lot of different personalities. At the end of the day, we were all striving for unity of purpose. 
There was no blueprint for an operation like this, and everyone was doing their best. In moments like this, I would like to turn to people like Angel, who's also a thoughtful poet. And here is where we will share a poem in his own words about who we are, what we're doing, and why we're doing it. Cierro mis ojos y veo su rostro. Se parecen a nosotros. De hecho, no hay diferencia. Más allá de sus historias de vida y experiencia, más allá de aquellas líneas imaginarias que hemos colocado a las cuales nos aferramos y nos hacemos creencia, piensa, no hay diferencia. Hoy, entre tiendas de campar, con un río de paisaje, sus rostros evidencian lo agotado de un largo viaje. Y aún así, en su bagaje, mantienen resistencia, esperanza, resiliencia y coraje, que mucho nos enseñan. Nos enseñan la lucha por sobrevivir, la importancia de resistir, que se camina, se lucha y se vive cuando se tiene un sueño, que cada día es un regalo y debemos vivirlo con el mismo empeño. Nos enseñan humanidad, que se lucha por un pedazo de pan cuando se tiene hambre, que se huye cuando se tiene miedo, que se grita cuando no se escucha. Sus rostros nos enseñan que no hay mayor motor que la familia, que se puede sonreír en medio de la tormenta, que no importa cuán duro la vida nos haya golpeado, nos podemos levantar si se tiene voluntad. Sus rostros nos recuerdan que existe desigualdad, falta de humanidad y sensibilidad. Nos recuerdan que la indiferencia es cómplice y que la lucha por el prójimo es responsabilidad. Sus rostros nos enseñan, nos recuerdan que todos somos migrantes, todos somos viajantes, que vagamos por el mundo en busca de un mejor porvenir, que todos somos migrantes. Valle de Sueños is produced by Selena Peña, Charlie Vela, and me, made in partnership with Trucha RGV. Edited an original theme composed by Charlie Vela. Written and hosted by me, Laura Peña. With artwork by Monica Lugo. Music in this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sound. For a full track listing, check the show notes. For more information about Valle de Sueños, please visit us online at valladesueños.com with a regular 